What's up, Sober family? Welcome to I Kissed Alcohol Goodbye, the podcast for newly sober people learning to love ourselves instead of booze. Stop trying to figure this out on your own and put it put your brain in other people's hands. We've done it before. There's a path there. Reframe has a daily thing you can do. Take that thinking about it out of the equation. Do what you're told. Do this. Work the system. I know they say work the steps, whatever. Work the system, work the steps, work what works for you. But but what doesn't work for you is try and think about it and figure it out, you know, on your own. I'm your host, Dana Kroll. I'm a former army chaplain who developed a toxic relationship with alcohol after leaving the military. And I stayed on a roller coaster of rock bottoms, recoveries, and relapses until finally in the winter of 2022, I found my way out of the cycle by connecting with people like you. After kissing alcohol goodbye, my goal is to never go back, but I can't do it alone. So let's break up with booze together. With me in the studio as always are Al K. Halfrey, my spirit animal for sobriety, and Spruce, my PTSD service dog. And now let's get rolling with these fine fellas. Today I'm joined by four of my sober brothers. We're going to have a great conversation about uh, just what it means to be a man and be sober because it's an important topic. And uh, we know that in the sober community, there are a lot of ladies who are doing a fantastic job of sharing their stories and uh, being out there and setting a wonderful example for us. But the, the guys, a lot of times are more hesitant to come out and, and talk about it. So I've gathered four guys who I really love a lot and uh, look up to. And so I'm just going to ask them each to introduce themselves. We'll start in the Northeast with Nick. I'm Nick. Uh, so California is well represented. I'm originally from California, but living in Vermont now. Started Reframe in December 2021. And uh, yeah, I'm happy to be here with with you guys, some of my favorite people from Reframe. Awesome. Andy, tell us about yourself. Hey, everyone. I'm uh, Andy. I've been sober since uh, June 3rd of last year, and I'm really excited to be participating today. And you're in D.C., right? At this moment, typically I'm in Iowa, you know, the real America, <laughs> but I'm currently in Washington, D.C., so, well, then you and I can represent flyover country since I'm in Ohio. Absolutely. Um, so we'll go next to Brian. All right. Thanks, Dana. This is Brian Wilson. I am in Tiburon, which is just north of San Francisco. Super excited to be on here. These are some of the guys that uh, I admire the most in this group and uh, looking forward to hearing their stories and getting knowledge from them today. Uh, I'm 294 days sober today, so almost uh, to my year. Awesome. Awesome. So right when this is published, it'll be uh, right at your 300 day. That's awesome, man. Last but not least, we got Mark also um, out in the Bay Area, but uh, on the south side. So tell us about yourself, Mark. Yeah, I'm Mark Grinsrud, uh, born and raised in the Bay Area, currently living in San Jose, um, wife and a 13-year-old boy and a 16-year-old girl. Keep me busy. Um, after lifelong struggle with alcohol, I've been sober since April 2nd of 2022. So I crossed my year a few weeks ago. Yeah, just here to kind of tell, tell the, the truth and, and hang out with these guys. And thanks for having me. Yeah. And I'm so excited to have the four of you because I've gotten to know each of you in different ways across the last year through the Reframe community. And again, this this podcast is not sponsored by Reframe, but there are a lot of like, uh, and Reframe has its own podcast, by the way. It's called How to Be Reframable. I should give them a quick shout out hosted by uh, Kevin Balak, who is the head of coaching for Reframe. Fantastic new show. Hope that you guys will check that out. But uh, these guys, I know them all from uh, the Reframe app, which is available on iOS and has helped us all to uh, stop drinking. So you may, you know, you're just going to get kind of a reframe-ish sort of uh, conversation here today. And I want to lead it off 
by asking you guys, um, you know, Mark, you had mentioned that, uh, you know, you work as a financial planner. And so you see um, a lot of guys uh, who seem to be uh, preceding their wives in death in your line of work. And and maybe we can start there. Like, what is it about guys and drinking uh, that you, or do you think it's connected? I, I guess is my question. We'll, we can start with Mark and then you guys take it from there. Yeah, I mean, I think men naturally tend to bury their feelings, not want to um, work through things like that and self-medicate with alcohol. It's because it's so pervasive in our society. It's, um, you know, it's something that I see a lot. You know, men tend to not want to go to the doctors as much. I'm being just super stereotypical here. But if you looked at like the average age of my male client or female client or the amount of widowed clients that I have, it's really telling to me that, you know, and I was doing a terrible job in my own life, you know, for the longest time. And now that I've gotten sober and working through these feelings that you don't really start to work through till you're maybe six or seven months in the sobriety, I recognize that there's probably so many, even of my clients that are going through the same struggles that, that I went through. And, you know, I think it's, we got to work hard if we're going to, if we're going to beat these women and, you know, live into our 80s. Yeah, a lot of us, including me, saw an ad on Instagram and initially thought, wow, this uh, this algorithm must be really good, that drinking problem. Now that I think about it, they could probably just put an ad for all men over 30 to find people with alcohol issues. Yeah, Andy, I hadn't even thought of that. But like, to be honest, you know, we tend to think of manly things to do that will prove to other people that we are manly, you know, and I, and I'm, I talk from the lens of like being the shortest guy in my class growing up. And that was always something that stuck with me. So the being short manifested itself in not being as tough or not being as strong or not being as, you know, let's call it masculine as the other guys. And so the way to prove that wasn't to uh, read more poems to to women or do, you know, do like, these things that aren't associated with masculinity, it was to drink as much as the tallest guy in the room, you know, fight as hard or whatever, you know, whatever it is, these things that tend to be less healthy, play football, like, you know, so the things that associate or typically have been associated with masculinity and your manhood, I think your point is well, well taken, like, it's those things that aren't actually very healthy and likely contribute you know to our downfall i think the other element of that is traditionally men have been um expected to go into careers and work and obviously women now are doing that you know probably better and more so than than men today but stress has been such a huge element in in men's lives and there aren't those types of outlets especially after you get out of school to diffuse that stress so it, the easiest thing to do is drink and and that's you know a way of handling that that stress that comes along with um you know whether it's trying to be the head of the household even if you don't have to you know you know work bring, bringing home like you know a salary or whatever it is um and i don't mean to say that as that's how what i believe a man is supposed to do but that's what societal expectations have been on men for so long yeah and nick you um where you work as a professor you know you got a lot of young um men you know, as cadets, right? And so like, what's it, you know, what's your take on on all this with, you know, based on what Brian's saying, especially? Yeah, so actually, you've got two professors in the house. Andy's a professor, too. That's right. Um, 
Yeah, so I see this front and center because especially I'm at a military college. Uh, so it's a very bro-y, you know, frat-like. It's frat life on steroids. Um, but, uh, you know, men, I think because of a lot of different factors, historically, men have been able to get away with doing stupid shit. Um, you know, uh, and so it, that becomes inculcated in us. You know, it's the culture of being a man is you can do that. And not just you can do that, but you can almost be celebrated for it. So, you know, the college student who goes out and uh, drinks, you know, 24 beers and then gets up and does PT and then goes to do his final exam, you know, where I like you're a hero if you can do that. Uh, you know, that's the conversation rather than, hey, man, you're killing yourself. Um, so I actually I take every opportunity I can to, you know, respecting professional boundaries and ethics and all that to talk about these things with my students. You know, I mean, alcohol, you can be an alcoholic when you're a college student. Being an alcoholic isn't just relegated to, to being an adult. I mean, I growing up as a boy, you know, there is that feeling of, hey, man, you know, how many beers can you drink and how long does it take you to get drunk and, you know, stuff like that. And then there's even let's just say putting aside abuse. There's that culture of, hey, man, you want to grab a beer? You know, the beer at the bar with the bros, you know, um, there's that whole culture. Uh, whether it's, you know, a beer at the dive bar or, you know, a swanky, a scotch, you know, uh, scotch and cigars, stuff like that, um, which is interesting because I actually never, as much as I drank, I never bought into that stuff. I always drank alone. I was the same way. I definitely drank alone and um, people didn't know what I was really doing um, because typically I wasn't a day drinker. I'd wait. It was just a loneliness type of so I think that we're probably a little bit the same in that in that sense. But, you know, for me, it was like just coming to terms with the fact that I was an alcoholic and I was very depressed. I already knew I had anxiety. But when those three all came together and it was like one year where I had already known my liver was jacked, getting jacked up, where I told the doctor, look, brass doctor, if I quit drinking, will, this, will I get better? He said, yeah, within 60 days another year i was just drinking like a fifth a day so like you know for me it was just coming in terms of the depression part getting some medication for that talking to a therapist and then that's when the sobriety journey ended. it really started for me but the depression is just debilitating and if you're medicating that with alcohol you're in a vicious cycle and i think there's so many more people that are and men that are going through it that aren't talking about it i've had so many friends approach me on the side hey man how is it like i'm really proud of you and like i have questions about my own behaviors and, and drinking and i'm very i'm very frank with people I, I don't have a private instagram page like a lot of people do i'm that's my public page people are looking at you see my family on there i put myself out there so that i'm more accountable so that that's been my feeling a lot of people want to keep it a secret or not talk to their spouses about it or this or that i've been very very honest and open about the struggles that I went through and depression was a huge part of it. Yeah, on this point about uh, seeking help, I think it's especially acute for men as well. And I think there's all of us, whatever your gender, who drink too much, there's a lot of shame associated with it. But I think for guys especially, no one wants to be considered when you're in this alcoholic mindset, a, a lightweight or someone who can't hold his liquor. 
and uh, it folds into concerns about the medical profession again. I'm an N of one, just one person. But probably four or five years ago, I made an appointment with a substance abuse counselor, and I explained to him every night I was drinking, and I explained to him, like uh, Nick and Mark explained, that I was a, a lone drinker. I would drink socially, but really I was drinking alone. And I told him, well, you know, if I'm at lunch or at happy hour and other people are, aren't drinking, I'm totally okay. And this counselor told me, well, sounds like you're not an alcoholic, you're just self-medicating. And that was it. There was an, an appointment after that. Now, I can't pin blame on him or anyone else because probably if he told me that you are an alcoholic, I probably would have just gone home and drank anyway to deal with that label. But I am the more I hear about how people did go out for help and the type of help they get, there's some severe misunderstanding or infirmities within the medical community about how to treat people like us. And you add that on top of the fact that we men want to be tough and not ask for help. And it's just a recipe for disaster. Yeah, it's so funny hearing you guys talk because I'm the opposite. I, I wasn't an alone drinker. I, I was a social drinker. Um, it's not that I wouldn't drink alone. Of course I did. But that wasn't my behavior you know, pattern. It was always about partying with people. You know, I get my energy from other people. So it was that. And it was proving myself, like Andy said, proving that I can hold my liquor and then I can drink just as much as anybody else. And, and all of that was, was a symptom of what Mark was talking about was anxiety and depression I had that I wasn't dealing with. And it, that's just, it's, it's gasoline on a, on a fire. Right. And it's a repeating cycle. And, you know, the, the alcohol is a symptom of the underlying things that are going on. And, and we always talk about this, like on our reframe calls, it's like, the reason for that is that it works. It works until it doesn't. Right. And, and it's, and it's not that it stops working on your anxiety and your depression or your, ability to numb that never goes away. Alcohol's ability to do that never changes. What changes is your mindset around deciding to, well, it's either learning that the behavior you have around alcohol is related to something deeper, or it's um, your willingness to just decide that you want to deal with that and those, those things and make a change. I want to suggest something in response to Brian. Uh, I saw a therapist, I'll say, seven or eight years ago. As you guys can tell, my first attempt at uh, dealing with the alcohol problem was a long time ago, 2010. Um, and I spoke to a therapist about this, and he told me something similar to what Brian said. He said, well, there's a certain logic to your drinking. You drink and you feel better. That's all I needed to run to the races. Somebody said, oh, there's some logic to it. And I would tell myself, oh, there's some logic to this. Now, I, I, I wince a little bit uh, when I hear things like, oh, well, alcohol works until it doesn't. But it actually never works because starting from the first time that I drank, I was learning to cope with alcohol as opposed to developing a different skill. So at age 19, maybe I didn't end up totally wrecked the next day. And I might say, well, it worked to have, make me have fun. But there was an opportunity cost to that learning better social skills, better coping skills, and so on. Uh, I'm sure Brian would fully agree with everything that I just said, but I just, I'm, I'm worried about uh, 
planting seeds for others when I know that my alcoholic brain would take that seed and run with it. Yeah. I don't think alcohol, alcohol ever works. Yeah. I, and, and that's a good clarification. So let me make sure that I'm crystal clear on what I mean when I say it works. So when I say alcohol works, what I mean is what ultimately I think is driving us to drink in the first place is some sort of societal pressure or some sort of pain that we're dealing with, or like that we just want to have fun. And, and I think that that's, that's fine. And, and it, it helps those things because it allows you to be social. And, and, and again, it is clear you don't need alcohol for that, but what we want as people is to stop hurting is to stop the pain that we're having. And we also tend to want it to be done for us. We don't want to have to put the work in because that's the hard crap. And a lot of times you don't know where to start. So what is easy is to get drunk because when you're drunk, your brain stops working the way it should. And it's stopping the bad things. It's stopping the, the pain that you have because you're kind of numbing it out. But what no one ever talks about, which is, Andy, to your point, is what we should be talking about, is that it stops the positive stuff, too. You're not working the way you should be. You're you're not working to your optimal potential. You're draining energy from your day-to-day after a day of drinking because a lot of that energy is going to, you know, your, your hangover. And so it works to stop a pain. When it stops working is when you realize that it's not working to your point. You know what I mean? And I know that that's a weird nuance, but. I wanted to hop on. uh, So Mark used a word that if you pay attention to the reframe chats, you would think was the worst word on earth, which is the word alcoholic. Uh, So I think if you, something that Andy and Brian and, and Mark were just talking about is like realizing that there is a problem and acknowledging that there is a problem in each of our respective journeys. Uh, and I don't know, I think it's, it's there are some downsides to trying to play semantics with, you know, am I an alcoholic? Do I have alcohol abuse disorder, whatever. You know, so a lot of people these days will say, well, I don't like the word alcoholic, right? It, it makes me think of a person living, you know, uh, by the bridge and drinking out of a brown paper bag and they've lost their job. Well, that's the point. You're not supposed to like it. Uh, you know, you're not supposed to be an alcoholic. Um, you know, that's why we change. Uh, but we can't change unless we identify that there is a problem, right? And have a point of departure for that change, which is saying, hey, man, I I'm gonna, I have a huge problem. I, I actually deeply respect people who have the courage and the uh, introspection to come to the conclusion that they are an alcoholic. Yeah, I think I think there's a there's definitely danger in that word and safety in that word. The danger in that word is that means I have to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And what that means is I have to do a 12 step program. And what that means is I have to believe in God and this higher power and all this stuff. Um, well, and there's a shame involved, too. That. And there's a shame. Well, yeah. You know. But the pos- but the positive part of that is like you have a pro- you've admitted you have a problem and and that's where Nick I, I you know I think that that's that's the root of it um, and from my perspective 
I see the word alcoholism as doing more harm than good because a lot of people would rather stay in the safe area and not admit it than they would rather than, than to admit that they have a problem, but they aren't necessarily an alcoholic. From my perspective, I don't care what you call it. I don't care if you say you're an alcoholic or you're not. If you can at least admit that you have a problem and are willing to put the work in to figure out what that problem is and to stop drinking, then do it, you know? And, and, um, that was like my entire adulthood until a year ago was trying to convince myself that I wasn't, or I'm trying to come up with, you know, excuses for it. And, um, I can personally just think, uh, well, the loss of my friend who passed away about seven days into my sobriety journey really like launched my mind into it. Like I got to do this. Um, but before that, I was taking antidepressants for the first time for about two months, and they were really messing with me, mixing those with alcohol and the antidepressants, just my body getting used to them. Um, you know, for the first time in my life, I was having weird side effects, and I was having trouble sleeping, and I was dizzy. Um, and, you know, the other elephant in the room, sexual side effects. Nobody wants, no, no, nobody here is talking about any of that. But, you know, I, I, was, I was having side effects from the medication and the amount of alcohol I was taking. And I had no choice. So, like, for me, it was just I, almost a blessing in disguise that I started taking antidepressants, started trying to m- making my brain a little bit, you know, chemically uh, curing me. And then as well as, you know, going full sober from that point forward, um, I think was vitally important. This this is where the magic is, right? Because we've talked about anxiety and depression, and those are symptoms just like alcoholism can be a symptom of something else that's going on and so it's like understanding the root cause of that anxiety and the depression is where we've all talked about the conversations need to be once you're past like let's say 60 or 90 days sober right because the early conversations in your early sobriety are always about alcohol and what you did and your behavior around it where the magic is is those conversations around why you drank. I drank because I was depressed because I had anxiety, but then the magic is the next conversation, which is why you were anxious and why you had that depression. And that's where the, the real work comes in where, you know, and I'll give you my personal example was it was because I didn't feel like I was enough. And it was going back to like childhood and understanding where that came from. And my whole, and and so anxiety and and depression, anxiety became, how do I prove every day to everyone that I'm enough? Oh my gosh, what can I do to do that? And the depression was, I failed at those things. Now what? I don't know what to do next. So it's like, it's all of, all of that. That's like, why it's important to to get rid of the toxic masculinity and have it be acceptable for like men to have groups like this or go to therapy to like figure out really what's what's going on because I don't, there's probably a lot of common commonalities among the stuff that we've all dealt with as as men and and as people uh, than than we realize. I want to come yeah, back definitely. to Nick's point about um, the alcoholic label. I've changed gears on that in, during my ten months of sobriety. At first, I really didn't like it. I didn't like being called an alcoholic because I'm like, I'm not drinking. You're the one who's still drinking, just a random person. Uh, why are you calling me 
an alcoholic. I think part of the challenge relates to our definition. I'll just say five years ago, I told a friend of mine that I had to go to a cancer doctor because my white blood cells were so low, it looked like I was a leukemia patient. And luckily, it turns out that it was just alcohol-induced. And so I told my friend, I don't have an alcohol problem. I uh, stopped drinking for four days and my white blood cells went back up. And she told me, you know, alcoholism really is more about your relationship with alcohol as opposed to drinking every day. I'm like, what does this idiot know? I just brushed it off. Because in my mind, this word alcoholic meant, you know, whatever negative stereotype you have in mind, not me, not somebody with the job, not somebody who showed up to work, not somebody who wasn't hitting or doing worse to other people. Um, so I resisted it quite a bit. Um, seven months into my reframe journey, I started going to A meetings and I found this term very strange initially because people would say, I'm Brian, I'm an alcoholic. I'm like, well, this is, it says alcohol, Alcoholics Anonymous on the door. Why do you have to announce you're an alcoholic when you come in? And then someone would say their name and then four minutes later they would read something. And once again, I'm like, I already know you're an alcoholic. And that person would say for the second time, the third time. Like the, to me, it just seemed like self-flagellation. People were just whipping themselves. Now I have a totally different appreciation for it. I think it really gets back to, Brian, what you said, that acknowledging you have a problem is so essential to recovery because we are so damn good at rationalizing why we don't. So I think it's just an acknowledgement that it's, I'm Andy and I have a problem. It, it has the same effect. And when you're vulnerable and dealing with what society considers a stig stigmatic disease, there's also a sense of community when you hear other people say it. So now I'm inclined to tell people I'm an alcoholic because I'm not living under a bridge. And by the way, I have some discomfort. Maybe me and Nick are academics and uh, I just want to be clear, there's nothing wrong with living under a bridge. We want to help everyone too. We want to make sure not to uh, offend anyone. But uh, just taking that as an example, I think I would like for the word alcoholic to be more widely used. I think that would have a more positive effect than to keep it understood in a very narrow fashion. But I appreciate your fighting that fight because I'll be completely candid. Is I'm not ready to tell people that. You know, I just have been saying that I don't drink and I do it for health reasons. And, I, and if they ask, I say I drank because I was numbing pain that I was going through and I decided it's just time to deal with the pain and it's way better. My life is way better without the alcohol. And I kind of, you know, that's usually enough. Um, and, you know, going on dates and and talking to people, um, I, I still get scared. Um to say that I'm I'm an alcoholic because of all of those things, especially dating and seeing somebody for the first time, like they don't know who I am. They don't know my history. So that stigma then says, oh, this person's an alcoholic. Well, what's going to happen? You know, he's not drinking today, but somebody, everyone knows somebody that they know that was an alcoholic. So the, and most of those stories are pretty shitty. So particularly dating wise, um, meeting new parents, you know, at events like they don't know me. I don't want them to think that I'm some loser that doesn't have a job and is is just, you know, drinking or whatever, you know? Um, so <laughs> I appreciate that you were putting yourself out there. Do it for the rest of us. Um, well, just to be clear, I, I fight the battle, but I choose my battlefields. I'm with you. Yeah. 
I don't lead with it in <laughs> I start with the people close to me in the safe spaces. First. Know your audience, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then, I mean, I use alcoholic and just threw it out there because it's in lazy. It's just throwing that one word out there. I mean, we've all seen that alcohol use disorder scale, right? Like, just like one through 10 or whatever. Um, you know, when I was first early on, I, I kind of scored myself. I was, I was, I was pretty bad on that scale. But I think now that we've done all the work and gotten to where we are, obviously we haven't had, you know, terrible hangovers over the last year that have affected, you know, situations we were in. And, you know, we don't have DUIs obviously since we've been sober. So there, there's a way to work back down that scale. And I, and I think it's probably fairly safe to say that everyone here has done an amazing job. Um, and it doesn't mean the work's done, but, you know, it's just like in those six month meetings that we, or the 90 day meetings or whatever on reframe, we're listening to all people that are like kind of where we were that are looking to grow and to get better in their careers and to get better in their relationships, you know, and just don't be afraid to kind of pat yourself on the back. Just know that there's still going to be work to do, but don't, I mean, if you would have told me a year ago, I wasn't going to drink. I had a couple small slips flip-ups around the seven-month mark. Um, I'd have told you you're full of shit. I thought I was going to die with a bottle in my hand. I was Sorry. at a point where I was, like, monthly looking at my, like, retirement accounts and my life insurance just to see, like, what was what's it going to look like on the balance sheet if I die from this? Like, it had gotten that bad. I can't believe that that, it, that it's come this far, that, that, it, that it's been a year, so... Not not to belabor the the alcoholic point, but the, but something that I think is important for people listening to to also consider is, um, you know, when you put a label on something, then you know what to do with it. And I think for a little while, saying to myself, "I'm an alcoholic," gave me the label I needed to give myself an action plan. Right? It's like labeling whatever what you're starting to feel like. I don't know why I feel all the time that I can't do this stuff. Um, and then, you know, a doctor says, oh, it's anxiety. You're like, oh, okay. So now what do I do about it? Right. So then, then you, you're able to put those, that action plan together to address it. Um, so there can be some freedom there, I think, to, to admitting that. Um, what, even if it's just yourself to, to then take the step of like downloading a reframe app or, or going to a meeting or talking to somebody that about it, that you respect that maybe can give you an honest opinion about whether they think you are, but uh, it's got to come from you, obviously um, yourself kind of admitting or understanding that you've, you know, you've got something going on. Yeah. Another interesting thing too is, um, you know, we know how, we rationalize, we get so good at rationalizing things. And the interesting thing is each of us was, you know, we would have been described as highly functioning, you know, so our lives were together, right? I mean, I never, I never got in legal trouble. I never got in fights. I never missed appointments or work or screwed up personal relationships. So it was really easy for me. I'm not an alcoholic, you know, I'm, I'm doing this and I'm doing this and I'm doing that. And look, I can go two days without drinking. I would say that to myself all the time. I can stop, uh, you know? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I like that, Brian, is this, as soon as you do say I'm an alcoholic or whatever word you want to use, you know, that gives you a, a point of departure for a plan, right. To make a change. 
And Mark's reference to, I guess, the alcoholism uh, scales or tables makes me wonder whether they need to be keyed differently to men. I recall at some point in my life looking at them, uh, there was a rule that binge drinking counted as more than three drinks at once. I'm like, three drinks? That's a lot for a toddler. Right? It just, <laughs> I was like, now I understand that someone who's having three or more drinks routinely as a college student or high school student or later probably is on the path to an alcohol problem. But I don't know, as guys, three drinks, I mean, I think a lot of it makes it easy to scoff at the alcoholism label or the need for change when the when the targets seem so out of line with what I suppose, as Nick pointed out, uh, is being done by functioning individuals. And I, I should, just a quick aside, I still recall the time that Nick quoted in one of our meetings that uh, a highly functional alcoholic is still a dysfunctional human. That uh, line has stuck with me for quite a bit. Yeah, and I mean, as high functioning as I supposedly was, um, I my attitude wasn't as good and at work. My, I was, you know, short with my kids, you know, and so, like, this far in the past, like, helping people is something that is, is definitely become something that I that I do way more and I think that's good I just think the community reframe has been so kind of open and been able to kind of bounce back back and forth in social media but you know I, I didn't have the energy to want to help people before all this I, I the energy was go to work come home figure out dinner drink repeat over and over now if I can help 10 people you know and feel, you know, it, it's almost like a selfish thing. But if you can help people that are on the same journey and help them, you know, keep from having a bottle in their hand that night if they're having a bad day, I, you know, if you can do that to 10 people, you're a hero in my book. I think the, the rationalizing thing is so critical to this conversation because just like what when we're talking about like alcohol works until it doesn't. And the point of that was that it works until you realize it's, it does, it's not and that that that's false and that's because we get so accustomed to our new normal that we think we are high functioning and we're actually underperforming in the in what our true capacity is um and it's that's a survival mechanism from for humans which is just to be able to you know you you gain some weight and you're like okay this is the new me or whatever you know um it's a lot like weight gain actually like you don't really notice it and one day you're like holy crap and that's because you're slowly rationalizing that weight gain you're rationalizing you know whatever that thing is until you can't rationalize it anymore right until it smacks you in the face and that's um <laughs> it's a scary day yeah, Brian's uh, point reminds me of my favorite analogy that uh, having a drinking problem is like the proverbial uh, frog in a boiling water. You put a frog in a pot and you slowly raise the temperature. The theory goes that it'll never get out. It'll boil to death because it doesn't realize that it's getting hotter and hotter. And I think alcohol abuse is like that. All these things accumulate. You just get used to having intestinal issues, headaches, and so on. If at age 18 or whenever you started drinking, you were, you were told all these things are going to happen to you 20 years from now, you'd be like, there's no way in hell I could live like that. 
when it happens gradually, it just becomes a new normal. Uh, I suppose it's a little bit like growing old. Uh, you tell me about all, all you see like the stereotypical 80 year old with like uh, 20 different medications and uh, all these things You're like how the heck did anyone live like that now i kind of understand it like, like hurt my back a few months ago yeah my back is a little uh freaky my fingers hurt when i play guitar and now i kind of see just get used to it but there's a difference between getting used to getting old and getting used to destroying your life with this substance uh, so a wake-up call has, has been very welcome for me. This made me think of a story, uh, <clears throat> short story, I promise. We, you know, we started out talking about there is this masculine bro culture about drinking, right? Like the more you drink, the, the more heroic you are. But uh, an interesting thing about sobriety is how you you can look back at your life and see all these snapshots of warning signs that that you scoffed at in the moment or completely ignored. You know, I remember one day, this was, I think, 2018 in the gym with these two guys I used to lift with all the time. And somehow we got to talking about that scale that, that Mark brought up. And, you know, the idea that so men are supposed to have two drinks per night, right? Anything more than that is unhealthy. I think that was what the metric was. And I remember asking these two guys like, hey, you know, so just to clarify, a drink means a shot, right? Or what is it? Four ounces of wine or 12 ounces of beer. And they're like, yeah, a shot. And I was like, so what happened? What if I'm drinking like 16 shots every night? And they were like, Nick, they were like, shut the fuck up, Nick. Like, you're not doing that. And I was like, no, really? And they were like, and, and they called me out like, hey, are you stupid? So like the warning signs for me, at least, were always there. I just never paid attention or or I didn't care. You know, I think it comes down to uh, to the idea of our own um, demise. Uh, it's not the word I was looking for, but I couldn't think of the other word. But like our our, our own death um, just, you know, wow. is that, thank you. Yeah, it's not something that we think about because we just think it's so far off and and it does creep creep on you. You know, I I talked to my 7-year-old mom when she was here visiting and she was like, you know, I don't feel 70, but I I remember when your grandparents, you know, when my grandparents were 70 and thinking about how how old they they seemed, you know, and 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 that's the that's a creeping part of it is like <laughs> you know, all of a sudden one day you're 70, and you're like, "Holy crap." You know? But that's that's a that's a male thing, I think, is to ignore the things that are dangerous because we we think we'll never die. What would you guys say to um, to those folks who are um, in that first month of sobriety? Like what what would be something that you would say to them? Because it is very different. Right. I mean, there's all of us are on the same day and some you know, we're all, we all have the choice today of whether to drink. So it's day one for all of us in, in some sense, but you know, day 100, 200, 300, 400, something is different. Um, so what would you guys say to those folks that are, that are brand new to it? Like what, what's the, the two cents that you would throw in? Um, I mean, I honestly, if, if you're willing to put in the work, I can promise you it's worth it. That's it. Like, keep it simple for me. It's just yeah. like, it's going to be hard, but like, there's going to be so many aspects of your life. You're going to learn so much about yourself. 
that you didn't know about. You're still going to have depression. You're still going to have stuff like that to deal with. But it's worth it if you do put in the work. It takes work, though. Yeah, if you if you stick with it, I can guarantee you, you will become the person you've always thought you could be and more. You you honestly will. And if you're thinking that you're on this podcast because you might have an issue, you probably do. And if that's the case and you want to be a better version of yourself, just stick with it. Don't drink because it just gets better and better. And it's it's really incredible. Honestly, it's not hyperbole when I say that. And just waking up feeling good, it's priceless. I mean, it's just, uh, it's such a big deal. I mean, everything, you know, it's the, obviously life has its ups and downs. Sometimes I'm upset and so on. But generally speaking, everything is so much brighter. Um, the adjustment period is tough. It's like if you were, uh, I don't know, let's say a, a boxer who favored his right hand and you just kept whittling away at your right hand, your right arm, destroying it. And then one day you have to start using your left arm. It's going to feel weird. You're not going to know how to use it. But eventually your left arm, your sober arm, is going to be way stronger than your whittled, comfortable, alcoholic right arm. So it's going to take time. There's a lot of things to learn about, but I'm so 322 days in, and you know those first couple of weeks, everyone's going to react differently. This is a guy's talk. I know the first couple of days I just had no libido at all, and I was like, "Oh man, am I just not going to be attracted to women ever again unless I'm hungover or drunk?" It just there's weird things just happen with your body the first the first uh, few days or potentially weeks, depending on uh, what you've been doing before that. But uh, I haven't heard anybody with of sound mind say that they regret becoming sober. I think the, it's definitely a net positive, even if life has its uh, natural cycles. I will channel uh, Static from Reframe, who I, I respect immensely. Uh, he said something the other day that really stuck with me. And he said, if you want to be alcohol-free or sober, um, then you need to do what you're told. And that really stuck with me, you know, especially because, you know, in that first week, in those first few months, it's hard. And you're going to be thinking about, you know, I don't really have to do this. I feel better now. You know, I can go back. If you want to be alcohol free, you got to do what you're told. Uh, again, because also you're not so, you know, millions of people have done this. Uh, and they've done it a certain way, which is community, meetings, fellowship, uh, and listening to people who have done it, you know, so do what you're told, you know, take the thinking out because the thinking is what's going to drive you crazy um take the thinking out do what you're told go to meetings every single meeting you know that's what i would do i would just add to that nick too that because that's so beautiful like the idea there is um like we, we can't trust ourselves it's clear that we can't do this ourselves and it's and it then and that's okay and so that community element is literally you know aa will call it your higher power but what it did, what it is is exactly that. It's stop trying to figure this out on your own, and put it put your brain in other people's hands. We've done it before. There's a path there. Reframe has a daily thing you can do. Take that thinking about it out of the equation. Do what you're told. Do this. Work the system. I know they say work the steps. Whatever. Work the system. Work the steps. Work what works for you. But but what doesn't work for you is try and think about it and figure it out. 
you know, on your own. This is so good. The uh, the last question I have for you guys is the theme for this season on I Kissed Alcohol Goodbye season four is owning our own stories. And I'm curious to hear how are you guys uh, throughout this process, you know, how have you owned it? Because I think it's especially hard for us as guys to just kind of stand on our own shoes sometimes and, and be able to look back at the things that we've done and, and make come to terms with that. At least for me, it's been a challenge. So how would you guys as, as guys, um, how have you dealt with that and what, you know, maybe you can relate that to something you would advise to others about, you know, who might be struggling with aspects of shame or guilt, embarrassment, et cetera, with their own stories. I would say uh, get sober first. Yeah, that's a, that's a lot to deal with. I think for me, most of my alcoholic destruction was inward destruction of spirit. I, in my 20s, I drank a lot, and I'm sure there was numerous occasions where I said something I shouldn't have, but my parents raised me pretty well, and I think I did a good job of apologizing where I erred. As for the other, that's a lot to take on, I think. Uh, and when you're starting out, I don't think we have the mentality to take that on. I'm, I'm learning more and more about myself with each new sober day. So I think just uh, like Brian said, I can't necessarily figure it out on my own. Being open and receptive to new ideas and new ways of thinking, I think is going to carry me far. Uh, and definitely future looking. I'm not going to bog myself down on uh, all the errors of the past. I'm going to try to control what I can. Yeah. Um, owning your story I think an important thing is to realize that you're you're not going to own your story, who you are, be uh, the best leader, the best father, husband, partner, whatever, as long as you're drinking too much, as long as you're abusing alcohol. Just chemically speaking, it's not going to happen. You know, you're limiting your brain. Um, so own your story, you know, in the sense, like Andy said, you got to get sober. So you got to do what you're told. You got to go to meetings. You can't drink. Take it off the table. And uh, I get the shame thing. On the other hand, you know, I don't. And I almost think sometimes we need this dose of reality that, okay, so you drank too much. You know, so have billions of people throughout history. Uh, so, yes, we feel the shame. It's real. You know, it's very real. On the other hand, I think a good way to get past that shame is there's nothing unique about that. Um, it's a very, it's an addictive substance and we are prone to becoming addicted as human beings. So, uh, you know, you got to get over the shame. Um, you know, you should own it, be unapologetic, um, you know, in sobriety. I just feel like so many people are worried about other people, what other people think. Um, you know, you know, what's right, you know, what's good for you and, you know, be very deliberate intentions right we talk about intentions all the time you know be intentional brian did you have anything that you wanted to add yeah i was trying to think of like i don't know something around what andy was saying it was so interesting to hear about that like that's a heavy it's a heavy thing to like own your story mark's spot on too and he says you know like that this has to be about you first and foremost put your oxygen mask on first, right? Like that is so much an important element of this journey. You've got to protect your sobriety like, like nothing you've ever protected before, right? It's your, it's your child, it's your baby. You got to protect it like that because it's so important in every, everything else that, that comes after that, right? It's again, it's a, it's a symptom. It's not, it's not about the drinking. There's something else there. And that's where you, um, 
need to understand that that something else is there is something that probably a lot of other people have too. Um, you're not alone in, in, in having anxiety or depression or whatever it is like, and it doesn't make you less of a, of a man. It actually makes you more of a man to be able to step up and, and admit that you have an issue and want it to fix it and be a better version of yourself. I mean, that's, man, I mentioned the dating apps. It's what every single woman wants a man that wants to continually work on themselves to be better. They they don't want to see fish pictures of the big fish that you rolled in or you weightlifting and they don't care how strong you are maybe in their, when they're 20, but the really interesting women out there are the ones that are they're They're looking for a guy that's wants to have these conversations and admit that they're wrong and admit they have a problem and admit that they're willing to put the work in to solve it. This has been amazing. That's a great place to end. Um, if it's okay with you guys. Um, yeah, like, thanks so much for joining us on this special episode of I Kissed Alcohol Goodbye. Um, Andy, Mark, Brian, Nick, and Alan Spruce and I send you all of our sober love, and we say goodbye, alcohol. Mwah. Hello, life. And much love to you all, and peace. <laughs>